I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, Julius Caesar. Did you also read this play in high school? Oh, um, I think I did. I feel like it's on, it's one of the ones that you read in high school. It is, it is one of the ones that you read, although because I went to such a weird iconoclastic school, I will tell you that instead of Romeo and Juliet in my freshman year English for the first time ever, my teacher decided to just like go rogue and do measure for measure. So frankly, like all bets are off. Oh God. Yeah. They didn't add Romeo and Juliet till the year after I would have read it. So we only did Julius Caesar and Hamlet. But oh well here it is we're here back is. in Rome I want to I was gonna like open with being like this play is underrated but I do feel like it's kind of like rated I think it's properly rated yeah like people recognize it's good it just doesn't get done that much because like it's a bit heavy and well I think it's interesting I'm sure we'll get into it I think it's properly rated in terms of like you know it's a banger it's a good one it's got some of the most famous language in the canon I it think, you know, really is insane when you watch this play and you're just like famous line, famous line, famous line, yeah. famous line. Like they just come and come and come. It's very annoying. It's a real banger. But I do think that it um, I think elements of it are perhaps underrated. Yeah. Such, such as the gayness. <laughs> such as the gayness. Um, It's true. And I do think I mean, like maybe we can just sort of neither of us have a history a personal history with this play as such I've seen it several times um, yeah neither but, I was I was thinking about that before we began neither of us have actually professionally encountered this play I really want to but except for except for that one time when we worked on the tent scene together in a workshop yeah but that however many years ago that was but like seven yeah um yeah. but that doesn't count quite no. I know well, I really want to work on this play, but... yeah uh, yeah, I haven't done yet. Um, but I've seen some very good productions of it and also some like even like the mediocre ones though were like pretty good. Um yeah. I saw one of the Trump Caesars, the one that was in the UK. <sighs> um, well, I saw I saw the park one <laughs> and uh so many I have so many thoughts and feelings. I've seen some really good ones. I mean, so I saw I saw the all woman, the, the Phil Little Lloyd prison Caesar when it was here first at St. Anne's in twenty thirteen. Did we see that together? I saw it with Matt. Oh, okay. But, um, friend but of the pod, I, Matt, who might be back one of these days. Friend of the pod, enemy of the pod, Matt Minichino. Um, but, uh, but, um, yeah, I saw the park one and it would, I mean, maybe as a grace note at some point in this conversation, we can go into the reasons why Trump Caesar is so deeply ill-advised and dramaturgically stupid, which I'm happy to put on the record <laughs> at the top of this podcast. Hot take four years later. <laughs> uh five years later yeah we'll see how we'll see how we go but I feel like maybe the stereotypers is sort of like I don't know impression people have of this play that I sort of want to set up up top Mm. and that we can maybe pull apart is the idea that it should end in act three yeah um because act three is when Caesar gets assassinated and of course when you you know study it in Mm -hmm. high school at least for us it was like why would the title character die in act three like what does that mean um and then which I think is like a, you know, a fair question to ask in a classroom setting. That's an interesting, yeah. but 
also so often it feels like this the answer in people's minds is like we don't know it shouldn't keep going because also in act three then we get the famous sort of dueling funeral orations between mm-hmm. brutus and mark anthony um and sort of after that point everything famous about the play has happened and there's just these sort of two trailing acts that like when you see it in performance i feel you often feel people don't quite know what to do with absolutely and i think what you're already talking about is this thing of like why people feel so compelled i think to try and rest uh contemporary different contemporary political moments around this play is the same question of like why people think it should end in act three is I think people mistakenly think it's a play about tyranny yes and responses to tyranny which it patently is not yeah and I think maybe that's where we can we can dive right in um yeah. so just like a quick oh I it's a play about Julius Caesar the <laughs> not emperor the sort of general yeah. who kind of wants to be maybe something like an emperor um but his bestie brutus and brutus's bestie cassius are like that seems bad um and cook up a scheme to assassinate caesar which they do unfortunately events pretty immediately spiral out of their control when they allow mark antony brutus's brutus's caesar's now former right-hand man to speak at caesar's funeral he riles up the citizens of rome enters into a triumvirate with octavius caesar's nephew and basically from there the two sides build to armed combat on the battlefield um which due to sort of both misunderstandings and bad tactics brutus mm-hmm. and cassius's side lose they both kill themselves or rather do the weird roman thing of have one of their slaves kill them yeah. um <laughs> And then we call that suicide because slaves aren't people. Um, and it's assisted. It's it's requested murder. Yeah, so. it's really odd. Um, uh, and then, yeah, we end with sort of Antony now that everyone's dead can be like Brutus was the greatest Roman of them all. But uh, we're going to take over. <laughs> Too good to live. Rome is mine now. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I mean, and again, it's one of these ones where it's like, there's no subplots to speak of. It's Thank just, God. <laughs> I mean, I think Imagine. we're noticing a pattern here of people, contemporary performance prefers the subplotless plays. Yeah, 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 that's true. Which is interesting because I feel like they often, I find them harder. Although I've never directed this and I've never directed Coriolanus, which we talked about last time, but I yeah. find them harder because I feel like, uh, this is a weird thing, but since we're talking about it, just speaking as a director, I find the plays with subplots in a way richer and easier because it's sort of like a thicker sandwich. Mm. Like there's, there's, there's tonal things to cut away to and from rather, rather than just kind of like management of a single ever evolving tone. Like when Shakespeare gives you places to go from Mm. where you are, I feel like it offsets themes that help you understand what the play is about. Whereas like, this is a play that's just like walk with these guys through this deed, through the aftermath into their kind of eventual end. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Um, That's so real. I'm immediately, for some reason, the comparison my mind went to was like Twelfth Night, where it's like, here's a exactly. scene about one type of love. Here's a scene right. about a very different type of love. Mm-hmm. They're totally different, but thematically resonant. Isn't that right. nice? Right, exactly. And it's sort of like a like a like a dish where Shakespeare is sort of like, I've already complimented all the ingredients for you so that if you just do that, it'll taste right rather yeah. than just kind of like manage it yourselves, you dick. I mean, and maybe yeah. that's why people are constantly trying to find like a lens to put yeah. this play through and yeah. I'll say that the best version of it I've seen was the one that the globe did in 2015 or 16 
mm. no, 14 or 15. Um, that was, I mean, it was one of, it was a Dominic Drumgold classic, a sort of mm. Elizabethan set, you know, all mm-hmm. white people, um, <laughs> you know, mostly men. Ah, yes. <laughs> Just like very traditional, but like, you know, in, in focusing so wholly on the text and on the relationships between the characters, it really yeah. just brought out the sort of richness and depth. And as you say, the fact that what you're being asked to do in this play, which segues perfectly, I think, into where I kind of wanted us to start off, is like walk with these characters, namely Brutus and Cassius through this experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I think it's a lot of, now that I'm thinking about productions of Julius Caesar, I've seen maybe the subplot thing has a lot to do with it. You lose a lot in practice with Shakespeare by trying to make a world rather than trying to make people. Mm. Do you That's know what really I mean? Interesting. I do know what you mean. And but... I feel like oftentimes if the world feels like a container that people don't quite understand and they spend all of their kind of mental energy trying to make a world, the people just sort of get lost in it and kind of paper doll around and there's no sort of there's no sort of reservoir underneath them. And it doesn't feel like anything. Whereas like, that's actually the inverse of what I feel like Shakespeare in his own practice is probably doing, which is just like the world doesn't matter. The people are what you're supposed to be listening to. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, And I think that that's, yeah, really very explicitly happens in these productions, including, you know, the Phil Lloyd one, where the kind of identities of the characters are meant to be inferred by their place in the world rather than something that it feels like has been built by the actor Mm -hmm. and the director together. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, Mm -hmm. Calpurnia is Melania. That has meaning for you. We don't sort of need to do anything else about that. You, You will bring your own meaning to who she is because of her place in the world. Yes, and I since you did say the in the in the park production, Calpurnia was so explicitly Melania Trump that the one of the only visuals I recall from that also she like they made her speak with a thick Eastern European accent like it was that explicit, and it was the great Shakespeare actor Tina Benko, and the one thing that I really visually remember from that production is there was a long scene where Caesar was in a bathtub and Antony came in like while he was in the bathtub with Calpurnia for a while in the scene where she's trying to convince him not to go and the end of the scene was everybody exited except Calpurnia and it was just Tina Benko made direct eye contact with the audience and then the bathtub shot down under the stage <laughs> through a trap door and <laughs> the look in her eyes before she plummeted below the stage is all I remember about that production. Oh no. I actually can't remember who was Calpurnia in the so when the UK is sort of Trump Caesar was less famous because it wasn't, I don't know. I mean it wasn't in America. Um, but it was at the Bridge Theater, which we've talked about before. <laughs> Our buddy Nick Heitner back again. Um this time it was actually a sort of direct follow-up to that midsummer and their sort of or no, it, it preceded that midsummer and did some things better that that Midsummer then tried to copy, including like having the immersive elements be that like the crowd is the crowd and like very right. sort of, like you're at a political rally. And one of right. the elements was that they didn't play Caesar as Trump in a impersonation way, but they definitely dressed him as Trump and they sold these red hats with Caesar written on them. Uh, so no. like everybody in the audience had like and not everybody but like a lot of people like bought and wore you know these like red hats and were like at the rally um and 
yeah, that sort of then just uh, in a subtler way kind of reflected outwards. And then Brutus was Ben Wishaw, who um, Mm. by nature, by virtue of being Ben Wishaw was like naturally a very sort of diffident, timid, scholarly Brutus. And there was this very sort of like the intellectual versus the populist. Yeah. Ben Wishaw is not not the noblest Roman of them all. That's a that's an interesting piece of casting. He was a very lovely Brutus. I liked a lot of the casting. uh Cassius was uh oh my gosh Catelyn Stark from Game of Thrones oh Uh, she's good yeah yeah her name has left my mind but anyway point being something that that did though and I think what we're getting at is like you kind of it it places the characters you're trying to like fit them into their kind of political identity boxes yeah rather than also like rather than kind of thinking about them in relation to each other in terms of like what they actually do in the play but there is something interesting in that as well given that like one of the conversations in the first scene really jumped out at me Mm -hmm. in relation to conversations we've been having all this time about like identity and it's a scene of sort of us getting introduced to a bunch of the characters by other people sharing their impressions of them yeah yeah um, so we get sort of famously Cassius kind of beginning to seduce Brutus to the cause of let's just kill Caesar by being like, I know you better mm-hmm. than you know yourself. Like, I wish you could see yourself like I see you. And then we get, you know, Caesar coming in, having his little side about like, look at Cassius. I don't trust him at all. And then you even get mm. the third version where Casca comes in and then leaves and Brutus is like, what a goober. And Cassius is like, no, you're totally wrong. Um, and it's, yeah, just like really interesting that, that then the question of people's identities and how to read and define them is sort of how mm. we're welcomed into the play, which I feel like is also mm. our first hint that like, Maybe this play isn't actually about politics. No kidding. I know. I know. I mean, so the first text that I pulled, which I think is, it's right in the beginning. It's right in one one. And I think it's right even before the, the kind of conversation about identity that they have, you know, about, um, Cash is sort of getting him on board by claiming to know him better than he knows himself, which is such an interesting tactic. But the first text that I pulled is Cash says, um, Brutus, I do observe you now of late. I have not from your eyes that gentleness and show of love as I was wont to have. You bear too stubborn and too strange a hand over your friend that loves you. I made the note, Cassius brings in love literally first thing. And immediately. Sparked me, from this point forward, I started trying to track the use of the word love and sort of who says it and in what context they Mm. apply it. Because like, as I think we said before, the last thing I want to do is be like, two men say they love each other. How gay. Right. Especially um, because that's like, we know that linguistically <laughs> that had a different kind of like cast in, you know, Shakespeare's time between men than it does to our ears now. But that being said, like, whew. yeah, I just got really curious about like, so then what, how is it being said? Like, what do they mean by it? And yeah. it really just is fascinating. Like um, the freeness with which Brutus and Cassius use the word especially in this first scene yes and like it reminds me of something that a uh teacher mentor of mine um Will Tosh who's at the Globe said once when we were sort of having a conversation about like how one can locate a sense of sort of queerness in Mm. early modern texts Mm. he's gonna have a book coming out about this topic but I think it hasn't been like announced yet so 
I'll that on a future time. Um, but uh, <laughs> get on the pod, Will. <laughs> sure, he would. Anyway, uh, what he was saying was like, yeah, of course we can't sort of like find a sense of like you know Christopher Marlowe would have identified as gay, or like Shakespeare wrote Cassius to be gay, right? But you can find both real people and characters for whom the most important relationship emotionally and sometimes sexually of their lives is an individual of the same gender. Yeah. And I think that that is sort of the energy of love that we are finding in this play is the Mm -hmm. idea of it's like, who is the person for whom you would give and do everything? Yeah. 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 And I think that's maybe even like kind of what the characters are trying to figure out is like, what yeah. does it actually mean when I say that I love you? What have yeah. I said I will do for you by saying, by using that word? Yeah. And I think that is sort of like a really helpful framework with which to kind of move through every stage of the relationship, because it is sort of like, in a way, a, a series of incredibly dramatic relationship tests to which they put each other in themselves without knowing what the end will be. Yeah. It's yeah. this thing of like, will we do this? Will Yes, I think we will. Think, Would we I do guess this? So. Yeah. yeah. And like later on, we'll get to it. It's like, it becomes like, well, you love me. So you should do this. And then we get to a point where characters are like, no, I actually don't think that's what that means. That's right. Um, but it's, so the line that comes sort of right after when you quoted the I pulled is then Brutus replies like, no, it's all good. Like, don't be upset nor construe any further my neglect than that poor Brutus with himself at war forgets yeah. the shows of love to other men. And so it's, yeah, this question right away of like, what does it mean? <laughs> like, yeah, I know that seems like, what does it seem to make a show of love? And what does it mean to be with himself at war? Because if he already starts the play basically being like, I kind of am in a lot, I'm in like a lost transitory state. I don't really know who I am right now. I'm at war with myself. And then we get this exchange really quickly after where Brutus says, into what dangers would you lead me, Cassius, that you would have me seek into myself for that which is not in me. And Cassius says, therefore, good Brutus, be prepared to hear. And since you know you cannot see yourself so well as by reflection, I, your glass will modestly discover to yourself that of yourself, which you yet know not of. And that's like the whole promise of the play. Yeah. You contain the capacity for something you haven't yet seen. Uh-huh. And I will be the one to show it to you. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what we've been talking about this whole time, really. It's like, that goes all the way back in a way almost to Hamlet, to our first episode of the podcast about like, what does it mean to have a friend, to have like an other that follows you and sort of like, I don't know, reflects yourself back to you or tells your story, except yeah. now that's where we're beginning instead of where we're ending. Right, right. And it's also like tells your story to you. Yeah, yeah. It's really <laughs> interesting. And it actually, it sort of pings me back to a little like thing I flagged at the very, very beginning of this scene. We've skipped over the first scene, which opens, it opens very similar mm. to lead to Coriolanus with the sort of scene of the plebeians like right. rioting slash reveling and some aristocrats getting mad um but then our sort of main cast enters and we have this odd little bit where it's the festival of the lupercal and there's going to be a race and caesar's like antony make sure and like touch calpurnia after you win the race which obviously you're going to do because that like cures barrenness and it's just like from the start we have this odd like sort of like threesome Mm. impregnation by proxy via another man 
Um, I just thought that was interesting. But in, yeah, in terms of sort That's of like, so what are you kind of like helping someone to birth? I like who is the person who actually kind of mm. um, enables your, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's something, there's something that that just like resonated for me for a second. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole kind of bouquet of weirdness. Cause obviously at the core, we have this thing that we're talking about with Brutus and Cassius and this kind of promise of like, I'm going to show you what you really are. It's like sort of stick with me and I'll, I'll, ref- I'll like, I'll help you discover it. And yeah, I mean this like barren heterosexual heterosexuality on the Calpurnia Caesar side, which of course we're also going to find weirdness yeah. in the Porsche, in the Porsche Brutus side. And like, you know, and then there's also like what you were saying earlier about how characters are introduced to us, the way, I mean, one of the most famous lines, uh, you know, the way that Cassius is introduced by Caesar is he when he's speaking to, it is Anthony. Yeah. Yes, yeah, they sort of come in and they m- m- murmur to each other off to the side. Yeah, and he also, and the thing that I always forget is, Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look is a really famous line, but the line after it is, he thinks too much, such men are dangerous. <laughs> it's just like, gay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah, he's, he's painted so interestingly by others. And also, like, I don't know, the, the play sets up Brutus and Cassius as a pair in this really kind of intimate tangle right from the beginning of the act, but also Caesar and Antony are kind of a pair. Oh, yeah, which, I mean, in some ways becomes more relevant. We don't sort of have, we don't sort of get their love examined in the same way, and we don't get mm-hmm. to see the inside of it in the right. same way. But the question of what Antony will do and how far he will go for his love of Caesar Caesar's. Yep. in act, it becomes a direct question, actually, in act yeah. two, which, I mean, maybe we're ready to just move into. I don't know. Do you have anything more back um... one? Well, this is just another one of, where the act yeah. breakdown doesn't work splendidly yeah. well, but the- there's a, there's two tiny little like text grace notes I would want to add yeah. just because one of my favorite little Brutus Cassius um, exchanges is, so Cassius approaches Brutus with this thing of like, hey, so maybe we can like call on you and like have a conversation behind closed doors maybe, but like not about anything real murdery. And then Brutus is like, shh. Sure. Um, and they have this little exchange where Brutus says at the end of one, two, he says, for this time, I will leave you tomorrow. If you please to speak to me, I will come home to you. Or if you will come home to me and I will wait for you. And Cassius says, I will do so till then think of the world, <laughs> which is just one of my like favorite exchanges. It's just such a weird, like, I don't know. It's intimate and odd. And like, you know, obviously the phrasing of I will come home to you or if you will come home to me and I will wait for you is like, you know, again, it's like the way that men use love in a much more kind of casual way than they do now, but it still falls on our ears in a particular kind of way, I think, you know, and it still has like a certain softness and a kind of weird domesticity to it. And like, it's just an, an interesting flavor. I'll be honest. It didn't jump out to me at all, but I can hear it. Now that you've said it. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I know. Yeah. I got, no, I can't pretend. No, that one didn't, that, that one doesn't pink. Love me. it. It reminded me also of like, it, it, it also reminded me of a little exchange that Richard and Buckingham have in Richard three, actually about like when men are transitioning out of sort of social political spaces into their own personal domestic spaces mm-hmm. and like invite each other over. It's like in a really similar spot in the scene too. Of like, there's a weird little thing of like, okay, well, after you're done doing this thing, just like come over or like, I'll come to you or whatever. And then we'll just talk about it. Okay, bye. You know? And it's just like a funny little moment 
moment. And then the very end of the act two is Cassius has a little moment to Casca. I don't, I can't find it, but someone somewhere act sort two of, or act one, act one at the very end where, um, uh, Cassius says to Casca, you know, you and I will yet air day see Brutus at his house. Three parts of him is ours already. And the man entire upon the next encounter yields him ours, which I just thought was so interesting because it's such a seduction feeling, even in like a conscious way. It's really interesting how act one sort of sets Cassius up as feeling like he needs to do a lot of work. Like we see a lot of, we see, I think more of Cassius in act one than we see in any kind mm, of subsequent act. It's true. He gets a soliloquy, a really yeah. short one at the end of the first scene, which is also a really famous one about like, you know, well, Brutus, I'm going to seduce you. And that's why noble-minded people should stick together and not hang out with like scumbags like me. Um, and then we <laughs> see him sort of being like, okay, I've like got all these people to drop letters at Brutus's door, like telling him to act like, and then he has this exchange with Casca. He's really like laboring really hard to get Brutus on side. But then we cut to Brutus and see that he like, he's already, I mean, like that line says, like he's already convinced he's already decided. Cassius probably doesn't need to be doing all this work. And there's something really interesting in that sort Mm. of, I hadn't thought of it till just now, but like, the unequal balance of, as you say, almost to the seduction and like, yeah. but also the way that like both within the play and I think in the, the, his reputation as a character, Cass just gets painted as like the seducer of Brutus yeah. when like that isn't quite what happens. No, but it is also like, um, yeah, it's an unequal balance of sort of effort. Like, yeah. I mean, Brutus is definitely the wooey, you know oh, what I mean? Sure. And it's interesting, I think you're right that it's like, he doesn't have to work so hard and yet it's really, really important to him that they get him on side and quickly and in a particular way and that it be him that does it, you know? And like, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, and then maybe, you know, it returns to, I mean, to Cassius's anxieties about whether Brutus loves him, which, you know, we're introduced as from that line you quoted in the beginning of like, you haven't, seems to love me as much anymore lately and Bruce is like no no no, I'm just distracted um I'm but just like, at war with myself Cassius's <laughs> lack of certainty of yeah I mean again like whether when Brutus says he loves him it's like does that mean you'll fight with me does that mean you'll undertake this with mm-hmm. me like do you love Brilliant. me enough to do the thing that I really really want you to do right right so really the suspense is less whether Brutus is going to kind of agree with them like align with them politically and more genuinely this thing that you're saying of like do we in fact define love the same way or maybe even do you love me or Caesar more right right yeah 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 and then I think that does kind of pull us into acts two and three pulls us onward yeah, yeah. So act two is then when we get this scene where the sort of conspirators gather in Bruce's backyard. Um, yeah. <laughs> time gets weird. It seems like it's that night, but also it's somehow now the eve of the Ides of March when Caesar has been prophesied to be, be going to be killed. And again, this is why it's like, you just can't think about it too hard. Um, oh, you can't, you can't. Shana Taub or Shana Taub, I don't know how you mm-hmm. say her first name, um, did a production of this that was at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And then I think in 
uh, I don't know if it went to New York or if it went to DC after that. Mm. Both it doesn't really matter. Um, oh, Shana Cooper. Cooper, sorry, Shana yes. Cooper, yes. I do no, this every came... time yeah. with them. No, I, know. I know they're different people. Famous Shana's. Shana Cooper did, and it came to Tifana. I saw it. There. Yes, thank you for yes. not. That would have been no, no. Would have gotten tweets. I'm um, there with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they both do Shakespeare. It's fine. Anyway, yeah. Shana Cooper's version, which I thought had flaws and I think suffered from this problem of she clearly didn't know what to do after Act Three. But something that I felt she did very effectively was sort of create this atmosphere of making the whole play to me feel like almost like a ghost story. Yeah. Like well, there was something yeah. very sort of supernatural and kind of woo about it from the beginning, which made things like this weird, like, what day is it? Who cares? Thing feel very like fine you were well, caught up in wondering no exactly and I agree with you that that was a good um aspect of that production and I think so I, I before the record I was texting you that I always forget about the ghost at the end of this play until I get there but it got me thinking that like I left it out of the summary so well well so I've talked about this this is just a tiny little kind of director rant that I'm reminding myself of but I've talked about this in relation to other plays before particularly Richard III because um that's another play where I always feel like people play it as a really kind of relentlessly realistic drama and then you get to the end and there's a parade of ghosts and you're like how did this happen and so you have to kind of work backward and make it a world in which the supernatural has always been present but actually it's silly of me to forget the ghost and Julius Caesar because the supernatural is always present because in this scene like act two begins with people being like yo like there's an unnatural storm and lions are like fucking eating each other in the street and shit and horses are going insane and it's like it has all of the same marks of kind of the natural world going bananas as Macbeth and some even more so yeah and it begins again with people sort of and this is what um Cooper's production did really well as they're celebrating the the feast of the Lupercal so like it opened with people sort of doing these ritualistic kind of uh-huh, kind of feelings, celebrations sort of. Yeah. yeah so it's there um and yeah so that's kind of what is happening in this sort of transitional point and then yeah they gather mm-hmm. to discuss like what are they going to do and this is where I mean we can jump in with this and sort of scatter around yeah. within the scene as we do the question of what does Antony's love for Caesar mean? What will he be sort of compelled mm. to do? Are they, should they kill him basically? Like how worried should they be? And I'm always fascinated mm-hmm. by the fact that only Cassius recognizes the threat yeah. that is Antony. And from the beginning is like, we have to kill him. And yeah. Brutus is like, no. Brutus has some great line about like, you know, we we have to, his his metaphors. I got it right here. Go for um, it. Cass- I, well, I don't know if this is what you mean, but he says, Cassius says, yeah, I fear him for in the engrafted love he bears to Caesar. Brutus interrupts and says, alas, good Cassius, do not think of him. If he loves Caesar, all that he can do is to himself. Take thought and die for Caesar. Interesting. No, that, well, I was thinking of, that's, that's just as useful. I was thinking of the moment where basically Brutus is like, we're gonna, we're gonna cut the head off the body of the state, but we're not gonna hack the limbs. Like his yeah. thing, of, he basically is like, Antony is just a part of Caesar's body. When the head is gone, it can't be dangerous to us. We're not gonna cut the body into pieces. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good line as well. But I just, yeah, I find it returning to this question we pinpointed of like, who loves who and who loves who and like Cassius's knowledge maybe of what he would do for Brutus helps him see much more clearly what Antony would do for Caesar that's really interesting that's really interesting yeah yeah I think that does make sense I think that 
Cassius and Antony have a lot more sort of um, their enmity and their maybe mutual seeing is a lot more kind of sparky and spiky than Brutus and Antony's. I think Brutus and Antony genuinely really respect each other. And every time they, yeah, but they're, they're, um, they don't have like beef in the same way. Like Cassius and Antony are very, very spiky. Yeah. I've never quite seen a production that pulls that out though. I've always wanted to. Well, long, long ago, we talked about whether there would be any value in doing a production of this where only Antony and Cassius are women. Yeah, which I still think is fun. Um, yeah, yeah, would would obviously divert from the gay in a certain in a certain perspective. But but also, you know, I think we were thinking along those lines of like, what if they're the only people who have sort of of necessity had to be quite so ruthless in the political space and see each other in a certain kind of way for that reason? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and so then this is the scene. I noticed uh, the thing that really jumped out at me as well in this scene is that they don't, they pointedly don't take an oath yeah. as a group. Cassius oh, yeah. suggests that they do. And then Brutus is like, no, no, we don't need that. We have our, you know, honor. our honor. Yeah, like yeah. If, if we're not draw, if we're not like spurred, I didn't pull the line, but like yeah. if we're not spurred forward by our own sort of belief, then like, just don't do it. We shouldn't have yeah. to be bound by right. these like external forces. Um, which I don't know, like, yeah, just kind of, it reminds me again, a little bit of like two noble kinsmen and all these other things where it's like, if our love for each other isn't enough, then Mm. forget it. Right. Right. It's so interesting because it feels like often the place that's brewed us up in this place of like much more kind of lofted idealism, like he, his sort of fatal flaw seems to be thinking that men are much better than they are. Yeah. And Cassius is the one who's actually like living in the world and understands that that's not a reliable assumption. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because it's this sort of, it does put Brutus kind of up on a pedestal a little bit to be wooed by others in terms of like, can we pull him down into this enterprise of ours or will it be too kind of grubby for him? Yeah. It's, I don't want to like skip ahead too much, but I don't want to forget it either. So I just, I pulled. Yeah. One of his last lines in the play just like stabs me in the heart. I know what you're going to do. I'm going to read it because I just want to say it. Um, He says, my heart doth joy that yet in all my life, I found no man, but he was true to me, which is weeps so sweet and gentle and naive. It's like even just looking at the events of the play, you're like, is that even true? But also the fact that that's what he says right before he dies, it's like his his naivety survives the play, if that's what that is. Like that's his dying thought. Yeah, his belief in the goodness of other people and then also like everything that everyone did to him came from a place of meaning well. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, and also, like, literally, since, like, we're going to talk about it in a bit, but it's like that feudal rage. He came up and, like, stabbed you in the back. Like, he, he absolutely well. manipulated you. He did it you. out of love. Yeah, it's just like, but I think that's such a great point. It's, yeah, like, I think you're exactly right. And that line sort of proves it. It was like, to mm-hmm. the end, his thing is like, people are, yeah, better than yeah. they are given credit for. People will see. And, and that people will see the faith and goodness in others. Yeah. Like I can yeah. kill Caesar. And as long as I'm doing it for the right reason, yeah. people will see that and understand it. That's right. And it's like, it's fascinating that that's still how he feels at the very end. And obviously like, you know, moments later runs on a sword that a guy is holding and his last breath is apologizing to Caesar. And yeah. it's just like, you know, I don't know, his goodness survives the play. 
Yeah. And that's so interesting because it's like, then you have Cassius on the other side who is basically just like, people are shysters, but I love you so much. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it's so Everyone but you is terrible. Yeah. But it's also, I mean, it's so, we didn't really talk a lot about his language of his own sort of identity and ambition in the first scene because it's not super gay. It's just Cassius great. Where he, or, yeah, Cassius, yeah. where he's just like, because his view is like, everyone is terrible, but that means I'm as good as anybody else. That's right. Like, well, no other- hierarchies because we're all shit. <laughs> well, I mean, yes. And also in the scene um, that we quoted from where he's initially trying to kind of get Brutus on side and is like, maybe we'll come over and have a conversation later. Um, he tells a story about Caesar that I find really interesting where Cassius is like, okay, one time Caesar uh, dared me to swim across a river with him. And I was like, sure, man. And we jumped in the river. And then a little over halfway, Caesar started to flail around and was like, oh my God, Cassius saved me, I'm drowning. And then I fucking swam over to him and like grabbed his body and dragged him back to the bank and saved his life. And frankly, I'm pretty sure that proves that he's no better than me. And I find that such an interesting anecdote for Cassius to pull out because it's this thing of like, he's talking about how Caesar set himself up as this great kind of like hyper man and, you know, is sort of duck bestride the world like a colossus and all of that stuff. And he's like, yet in a contest of strength where it's actually just sort of like body to body, he like lost his will in the middle of the river. And I had to sort of carry him back like a baby. And like, they like, you gotta be the better man if you can do that. You know what yeah. I mean? It's really interesting that it comes down to the physical for he's him. He's very fixated on Caesar's physical. He also is the one that like, he had a fever once in, wherever and it's like yeah man that happens (laughs) sometimes (laughs) yeah um but yes no I mean that's so interesting I mean and maybe you know yeah I think it comes into like I wonder if there's like a connection here to the idea of where this play is going of like Mm. who you're gonna bring into battle with you like who's Mm. gonna die with you is it gonna be the guy who gets tired gives up halfway through yeah, it's just, there's so many interesting ingredients, all, all of these. I think you're really right in pinpointing the thing of like, it's a question of who loves who and is it enough? And is it too much? And is it the wrong person? Like, is it just sort of a Rubik's cube of men who love each other in the wrong direction? Like just a little too much, but not aligned. Yeah, or like different yeah. understandings of what love means. yeah. And I think while we're in act two, speaking of the Rubik's Cube of men, I want to talk about the women for a hot yeah, second. Yeah. Um, one of the scenes in this play is a carbon copy of the scene we've already talked about between Hotspur and his wife, between yep. Brutus and his wife. And then we also have uh, Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, who we mentioned a second ago, who tries to stop Caesar from going to the Senate because she has had a prophetic dream that he will die. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think there's something really interesting I've, I've written about this, um, uh, but, uh, you know, in the fact that, like, the key divergence between the scene with Hotspur and the scene with Brutus, which yeah. is literally, again, they're the same scene. Until the um, end. Until the end, when Brutus is like, actually, you know what? You're right. You You're deserve right. to know. You stabbed yourself in the thigh. Speaking of, like, physical strength is proof of, like, I'm a person who should be trusted. Yeah. Um, which is so Roman. That's such a... I know. Um, You know? And he tells her, and that's where it diverges, but it's still just like the women in this play. And then Calpurnia Calpurnia sort of convinces Caesar for a hot second and then gets blown off. Mm -hmm. And then 
we have this really interesting scene at the end of the act where Portia, Brutus's wife, is at home and she's trying to get news from the Senate. And she's just like, oh, I'm so frustrated that I can't just go there. Yeah. And it's just like the way that Shakespeare sort of takes time in this act to sort of place the women in this really deliberately separate yeah. sphere where they just can't, they both can't speak the language of the men. They can't make the gestures that the men make and they can't be present in the spaces where the men go on to kind of make their shows of love to each other. Yeah. is really interesting to me. Me too. Me too. Yeah. That's so interesting. So the, I have so many Portia questions covering it too, but the, 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 the stab yourself in the thigh thing, she presents this wound that she's given herself offstage. Although actually in that Shana Cooper production, it was in New York, it was Merritt Jansen who played Portia, who I love. And she stabbed herself on stage. I think I've seen that. Happen so it wasn't, a, I had never seen that where it wasn't a wound that she was like, surprise, look at this wound. I mean, she says like for proof, wherever something, I gave myself this wound in the thigh. And then he's like, oh my God, lady, that's what? crazy. <laughs> but like, you know, it's so, I just had a thought while you were explaining that about just how like how fucked and sort of vexed and moot and horrible it is to try to prove your physical valor in the way that the men do, but to have no recourse and like, no, like all you can do is stab yourself. I mean, Jesus, you know, but like, so she stabs herself and is like, look, I can endure all this pain. So I can definitely like hold your secret or whatever, like bear your news and it's a crazy thing to do. And to see her do it on stage was a really interesting choice. I had never seen that. And she was like, I gave myself this wound in the thigh, whipped out a knife, stabbed herself in the leg in the yeah. scene. And, and I was just like, oh my God. Like, yeah. it was certainly effective. Yeah, but it is so, you're so right that it is fascinating as this sort of desperate gesture. Yeah. That I can live in this world with you, but at the same time, in it's like even, that's meaningless. Yeah. And even trying, it's proving that she can't. Like, it's like, yeah. no, that, that is not the same as going and stabbing Caesar, though. It's really not. And also, it's just like, I mean, I had a question about this, actually, and I wondered if you have a thought about it. Um, when she first comes in, Brutus says something about, you know, exposing your weak condition to the raw, cold morning. Is she like sick pregnant is she or is that just like you know being a woman I think it's just being a woman um I've seen ones where she's pregnant doesn't Mm -hmm. add anything um well it's interesting just in terms of this thing about like what kind of marriage is it because you know obviously like it starts with the same explicit thing that Kate says to Hotspur in the beginning of that scene of basically like you're not in my bed very much anymore which we take we take in Henry Ford to be like a real proof of how kind of cold their marriage is but is this that or is this something else? I mean, you know? it's interesting when we think about when he's like, I Brutus is at war with himself and neglects the shows of love to other men. It's like, well, it turns out he neglects the shows of love to women too. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 No, I, I I wonder if it's a reference to like something in Plutarch that I mm-hmm. didn't do enough research to answer. Yeah. I think it's just like, you're a woman. Um, the mor- <laughs> mornings. I would never, I would never expect you to go all the way to Plutarch simply, (laughs) simply for the pod. I would never, I wouldn't wish that on any man. (laughs) There was a time when I was going to do so much research for this podcast. And then those are different um, days. I didn't. I don't. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, no, I just, um, I mean, this is again, like a topic that I think about a lot. It's just like the way I think we just have to read it. Um, for reasons I can get into maybe in another play uh, as more than just Shakespeare sort of sexistly 
shoving women off to the side because he doesn't care. I think it's a little bit that, but I also think he's just doing something really deliberate. Mm -hmm. And you've really driven it home for me how much the stab is part of this, of just Mm -hmm. saying like, they can't cross the barrier. Like they want to and are being prevented by their social circumstances and by their gender. And they're trying as hard as they possibly can while fundamentally just speaking a different language yeah. and I think the sort of parallel to this is like Calpurnia speaking in this language of dreams and prophecies which we're told Caesar believes but like it's not the then at the end of the scene one of the conspirators of not forgotten who comes in and speaks a different language of politics and reputation and that's yeah. the language that works that's right it Caesar to go Caesar listens to her but then of course when a man comes in and is like this hose interpreted your dream all wrong and like reinterprets it. And then, and then Caesar is like, Oh, I was so crazy to believe you a second yeah. ago. Well, you know, he's and even like, like, what will people say if they learn that you act based on what your wife saw in a dream? And that does work, you know, which is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it contributes as we, in the way that we've talked about in a lot of these other plays to the sort of, hint of gayness in all of their love for each other when women are being so actively excluded from the sort of array of options for most important person in your life right and and just right by and by virtue of their total exclusion from the political space which is the space of like reputation intimacy advancement like they cannot matter so they so they do not you know and it's just like you know yeah it's so interesting and then like the stab thing which continues to be relevant later for Portia the thing of like if your only if your only hope of sort of entry into the world is through like literal self-destruction yeah this sort of pale mimicry of the way the men show themselves it's like all you can do is die at home I mean literally though what Brutus says about Antony isn't it all yeah. he can do is to himself to himself die for Caesar. Yeah. And that's in the end all Portia can do either. Yeah. It's actually really placing Antony in the position of the wife. And um so yeah. um many years ago, I can't remember, it must have been like two thousand ten, maybe earlier whatever. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival did another version of this, um, with Vilma Silva as a woman Caesar. Right. Um, and they cut the kind of explicit lines about the dream, but a lot of the language of this scene was given to Antony. Oh, wow. As a sort of like, maybe don't go. Um, oh, which, interesting. Yeah. It would be I, so interesting to do that and and keep them both men. Yeah, yeah. And <sighs> let it be, because obviously, you know, inevitably, because they were now a heterosexual pair, there was a of sort course. of tension. Energy. A, I can't remember yeah. if it was explicit or not, but there was certainly a vibe. Sure. Which is so interesting when productions do that, though, because it really makes you look at like, okay, well, there is a vibe anyway, or you wouldn't have done that. Like there is textually a vibe. You just made it sort of sexually palatable. I mean, in this case, there's a vibe because it's husband and wife and they just have given the lines to. Right. Well, right. But I mean, like, I feel like that so often happens when people regender one part of a pair and then a romance emerges and it's like, okay, well, was the, the romance already, was this the, the, the whiff of it already in the text and you just sort of aligned the pieces to make that playable for you, you know? And like, yeah. what would happen or if you just played it? Did you just see a woman talking to a man and we're like, oh, they must be fucking. Both. <laughs> Whenever you have like female Peter Quinces and suddenly there's like this vibe with bottom, I'm like, that's just because you literally can't there's conceive a of a of woman those. and a man exchanging dialogue without sexual energy. And that's insane. You're insane. 
anyway <laughs> um <laughs> yeah uh but i think that there's something there for sure and it's yeah the ways in which we're kind of yeah i think we're kind of finding a, a thread here of how yeah cassius and brutus and antony and caesar get paralleled in ways that kind of also yeah. now maybe parallel in Capernaum and Portia as well. Right. Right. So pretty quickly we get to the murdering. Yeah. And now we're in act three. Um, <laughs> and there's murder. I mean, act three is when everything happens. The assassination yep. happens and the dueling funerations happen. Mm-hmm. And if you are a high school English teacher, this is where you believe the play should end. That's so unfair. There's many, many <laughs> wonderful <laughs> high school English teachers who know better. But that very, very much like kind of how I was taught it, it was like the final and, and, and the important see, stuff's over. <laughs> I mean, and you see it in productions too. People cut yeah. Act Four and Five into to be like 15 minutes, and then, I know, I know, which is so um, wrong. I mean, lopsided dramaturgically, but also just like yeah, like misidentifies what the play is about, what the story that we're watching is. Yeah. Um, and so, but this is where we get, you know, we get some stabbing. Um, we sure we sure do get some stabbing. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know kind of where to start. I mean, so this is again, we have uh I love I mean to draw this thread through in the sort of aftermath of the stabbing, which we can talk about more, we get the return yeah. of this debate where again Cassius is the one person who identifies that Antony is going to be a problem. Yep. And is like, do not let him speak, don't do it don't do it and Brutus is like it's fine and Brutus is also like people will say it's unfair we know we have to be fair like he's just gonna say goodbye to his friend he just said he wouldn't do anything shady (laughs) (laughs) narrator voice he did something shady yeah (laughs) narrator voice Antony makes eye contact with the camera he intended to do something shady but it's also though like in a way Brutus is right it's like what Antony does is motivated out of love. Antony gets yes. an so Antony gets an amazing speech uh, to Caesar's body after mm-hmm. they all leave. So all the stabbing happens. It's stabby. It's terrible. Stabby stab. And yeah. then it's very chaotic. Leave. Like it's a huge mess. And I think again, like, well, ooh, yeah, I have thoughts about this. You go. No, no, yeah. Let's let's let, we'll, we'll linger on this for a second, and we'll turn to Antony. Um, yeah, I mean, I just feel that like again, this is where the desire to cast the narrative in contemporary political terms of any kind just completely breaks down. Yeah, you can't do it. You can't um, do it. It's a group stab. It's a group stab, and, but it's also, like, I just think that, like, Shakespeare is neither as celebratory nor as condemnatory, is that a mm-hmm. word? Um, Of the act as yeah. a political, as, like, a contemporary political reading demands. Um, I agree. Because it's, like, yeah, but also, like, it's just, it's, it's such a mess. Like it's it's not it's glorious at all. Mess. It's a huge chaotic. Well, and it's actually yeah, like disaster I, you know, of a scene. Well, now that we're thinking about it and really zooming in on the thing itself, because the whole play up to now is wind up. Are we going to ask each other to do this thing? Are we going to be able to do this thing? What would it be like to do this thing? And something we've talked about on the pod before in different contexts is this idea that maybe Shakespeare has that there is no such thing as a good murder. Mm. um and this is something that uh that will fears and i've been talking about a lot in our work on hamlet is just the idea that like there is no such thing as a good murder and the idea that like even if you think it has to happen and you think caesar is a tyrant and is bad for the country and is doing whatever like the way that they imagine 
the act. And they talk about like, people will, will remember us as like the people who brought justice and who did all these things and will be heroes. And then you get to this thing and you stage it really quick and dirty and messy and confusing and horrible. And then we have to just sit in the, in the wreck and everybody's covered with blood and Antony comes in and it's disgusting. And then they're like, don't worry, we did it for Rome. And he's like, yeah, okay. Like, it's just the way that they imagine it is gross. And it's the thing that bonded them and the thing that they offered each other. And it's gross. And it doesn't matter whether Caesar is like bad for Rome. I really feel like often Shakespeare believes that this is why it doesn't map conveniently onto any political, any contemporary political landscape, because I really feel like the mess is in the gray area between like, nobody really deserves to die and nobody really deserves to kill. Like, it's just, it's not, it's, it's not nice to group stab a guy, no matter what you believe, it just isn't good. It sullies your, if you did it for love, it sullies that love somehow, you know, especially if you would stage the scene really gross and messy and like, it's not noble. It doesn't feel good to watch, you know? Yeah. I don't agree, but really, no, I don't think say more. Well, yeah, I just, I don't think that Shakespeare's view on it is that black and white. Like I do, I totally agree with everything you're saying about the sort of practicality of the scene and what a mess yeah. it is. And I also totally agree that it is a sort of permanent fissure and sort of yeah. crime that now sits between Brutus and Cassius from this point forward in ways that we will talk about. And also yeah. sort of thinking structurally, dramaturgically, like the way, the reason it sits at the center of the play is this right. sort of, I think the case that, you know, in some ways we want to make is that like, it's not about the politics of death. No. It's not about whether there's any such thing as a good murder or a bad murder. That's sort of irrelevant. It's about whether Brutus and Cassius's murder was mm -hmm. the right thing to do. And really exactly. on some level, whether Brutus loved Caesar more or loved Cassius more. And in the end, right. he begins to suspect, actually, maybe I loved Caesar more. And I think that the reason I say that is because Brutus does convince the people mm -hmm. at first. Like there is a case to make for this being the right thing. And he successfully makes it. He just makes the mistake of talking first instead of second. Yeah. And so I think that it's, yeah, just to me, it's not quite so clear that Shakespeare is making a commentary about assassination or death as such. And I think that, that actually is the problem that- mm -hmm. That's the, not the, quite the meaning, what I mean, but- because I, I, I don't I'm not trying to suggest that it's black and white in any way I just think it's the I think it's the the sense of like what we were talking about walking watching these two guys kind of walk through the experience it's just the idea of I think the thing is that it isn't black and white it's just gray it's like we expect it to feel one way and then we do it and then the rest of the play is about it feeling different than we thought it would yes but I disagree that the idea is there's no such thing as a good murder hmm um, and I think that that is actually, like, I think that, I mean, pretty explicitly, as I recall with the Shakespeare in the Park production, like, that was the um, kind of energy that production was trying to capture. The idea that, like, ooh, we're going to set up these liberal audiences to be like, gotcha, murder's bad, even if it's Trump. And well, I yeah, I mean, like, like yeah. that's sort of, I think, I think part of the problem is, like, that's not quite what the play is saying. Well, I think it also didn't work in the park because Caesar isn't Trump. Like his well, politics, politics aren't like it. 
he isn't that. Well, his politics are irrelevant. Right. Right. Is the thing, but I think it's both. It's that the plays, as we're kind of saying, the play is not about Caesar's politics. They don't matter. And I just don't think the play is saying, gotcha. You thought murder was the answer. Even even when it's a guy you hate, it's not. No, 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 neither do I. I think it's just the thing of after the thing, they look around at each other in this sort of, I think we are meant to feel the weird dissonance when Antony comes in and is like, hi. And they're like, hey, I know we're covered with gore, but this was a good thing, we promise. You know, and then yeah. all the way after that. I think just as like a big historical fan of the French Revolution, I'm more ki- pro-killing <laughs> monarchs than you. I'm like, actually, no. though, sometimes they just gotta die. Well, I mean- yeah, I think that's a fair, I think that's a fair point. I just think that in practice, some of the most successful, well, I, I will say some of the most successful versions of the scene that I've seen are that inevitably they try to approach it in some kind of ritual, like they try to approach it with dignity and it just doesn't have any. I think that's you know? fair. I think it's fair, but I also think that um, in the play, it would have, like, if not for Antony giving the funeral speech, it would have sure. been fine. Sure. They had it together. They had the narrative set. They had managed to persuade the people yeah. of the ritual. Like it actually, like the problem, it turns out there was the party a party line where, works. Yeah. yeah. Like the murder could have worked out fine. The problem is, the problem is, as we've kind of been building to, I'm realizing they underestimated what love meant to Antony and right. what he was willing to do to avenge Caesar. Right. Right, 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 right. And I mean, you know, so some of that language we got to get into. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't pull anything like a fool from the big speech that Antony has. So what what got me off on this tangent is the the order of events is post-stab. Antony comes in, they have this moment. Cassius, quite reasonably, is like, we've got to get rid of him. And Brutus is like, no, we won't. We won't. We can't. He's fine. Antony, <laughs> Antony swears to them that he'll, you know, that he won't fuck them up. He lets them have their say, whatever. They kind of part tenuously friends. Brutus and Cassius and the other conspirators leave Antony in the room with Caesar's body mm-hmm. because he's like, can I have a sec, please? And they're like, of course, of course, of course. And um, and then he basically walks back. He has a speech to the body where it's yeah. very emotional. And yeah. it, it starts with- Oh, pardon with- me, thou bleeding piece of earth. I am meek and gentle with these butchers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's like that. It's very emotional. Yeah. And this is where we get famous lines like let's slip the dogs of war. And again, just banger after banger. Um, and it, it again, like really complicates the Antony we are going to see in the very next act, who is mm. being very sort of cold and mercenary. I mean, and even by the end of this scene, it's like, you know, I've said, I mean, yeah, he's already setting plans in motion by the end of the scene. And then the next scene is a funeral speech. And again, he gets very sort of in a much more fake feeling way, very emotional. And then yeah. by the end of that scene is like, hey, hey, hey mischief is afoot. Let it it's work. so interesting that Shakespeare lets us see the real version and then the public version, though. That yes. Shakespeare, and I love you framing it in this idea of what would Antony do for love and what we've critically misunderestimated or Brutus has is what love for Caesar will make Antony do. Yeah. And, and you know, you get the private version, which is really visceral and tactile and gnarly of Antony kneeling by Caesar's body and having this monologue alone to the to the corpse. And then the public version where he sort of turns that and makes it a political tool. Yeah. And I wonder, is like, is there something in like Brutus can't understand because he killed Caesar out of love for him? He's like, yeah. I know what it means to love Caesar. I love Caesar. I can guess what P- 
people will do for love of Caesar. That's right. I mean, so in Brutus's, in Brutus's uh, funeral speech, you know, he has this thing of like, Caesar was ambitious, was this, was that, was this, as he was this and this and this, I loved him, but as he was ambitious, I slew Yeah, he, if I could read it, he says, if there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus's love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that this friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Right. Um, yeah, and then, but uh, you know, as Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. There is mm-hmm. tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, death for his ambition. When I, right. with this, I depart that as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. Which like also that happens later. Yes, but, start the clock. Um, start the clock. But that's like, it's just such interesting language and obviously like tracking your thing about where love shows up in the play. Like, you know, it's, it's, um, I mean, he sees, he believes all of that. Yeah. He sees this as an act of love. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, can killing be an act of love? Yeah. And I think almost that's more, yeah. Like more, more like that's the question. And it's interesting that then Antony's speech is also about love, the love that Caesar had for the common people. And his love is shown by like, you are his heirs. He left you all this stuff, which like doesn't matter. It's really funny. It's like the parts of the speech, remember or not, it's like he left you his parks. And also then in the very next scene, he's like, let's go through the will and see how we can get some money back for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's just cold mercenary, but it's so effective. And of yeah. course, like it whips everybody up into a frenzy. It is not me. You know how Caesar loved you um is what he says but uh yeah and so that sort of plunges everything into chaos and brings us Mm. into the kind of again what people sort of treat as the like sprint to the finish but it's two entire acts yeah and one of them is quite short yeah well I mean but they're they're like you know well four is high impact yeah they're meaty but they're not they're meaty it's true no um yeah. So maybe shall we just move into four? Forward? Yeah. Also because yeah. we've been talking for an hour and we have two acts to go. Listen, um, everybody. It's it's juicy. It's juicy shit. I mean, yeah, act four is basically like we're moving into war town now. Yeah. We get, we meet Lepidus. There's a really great scene where <laughs> Octavius, who has now showed up, Antony and Lepidus are being a triumvirate and basically are like I mean, again, this is why it's, this is, this is the sort of ambivalence is it's like, yeah, maybe the murderers are bad, but like now Antony and them are murdering people too. So like, oh yeah. I mean, once you're at war. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, but it's not war murders. It's political murders. They're assassinating. They're going through a list and choosing people to assassinate. Yeah, that's right. Um, And uh, Antony's very sassy. Um, But (laughs) I think that the sort of like centerpiece of this act for our purposes and sort of the centerpiece of the act structurally for this question we've been tracing of like, if the kind of question, the question of the love triangle, who did Brutus really love more, Caesar or Cassius? And that sort of comes to a head in this scene in act four where him Hmm. and Cassius have an argument that is supposedly about (laughs) whether... Cassius has been bribing people and also whether Brutus refused to send him money 
it's like another one of these things where it's like the politics of it and the details of it are so not the point. The point is the emotions. Oh, it's ridiculous. Also, though, the the little um, I pulled some text from the end of the previous scene before they go in and have the scene that is known as the tent scene, which is this argument. Yeah. Because... I mean, there's, it's a sort of weird like it's a split scene because they change locations, but you can tell it's not actually two different scenes. Um, well, but they they change locations because Brutus wants them to be alone for the conversation, which is some of the text that I pulled because they started off Cassius says most noble brother you have done me wrong and Brutus says judge me you gods wrong I mine enemies and if not so how should I wrong a brother and then they get into it and Brutus says Cassius be content speak your grief softly I do know you well before the eyes of both our armies here which should perceive nothing but love from us let us not wrangle bid them move away then in my tent Cassius in larger griefs and I will give you audience so it's literally like you need to shut up right now let's go (laughs) let's go like get a room and then yeah. we can get into it. And this is, I have to, in this kind of like trend that I've been tracing, this is the only time Brutus uses the word love towards Cassius in this entire sequence. And it's in relation to, we have to seem to love each other in front of other people. Oh, that's As so opposed sad. to in their first scene where you talked a lot about, like, you know, I love you, the love I bear you. It's like, that's gone now for mm. him. Oh, that's so interesting. That's the only time that he yeah, says it that little bit. Cassius says again and again, and I've I've pulled together a like little collage. Go. Go. Says, a love not, collage. Yeah, do not presume too much upon my love. I may do that. I shall be sorry for. And he says, "You love me not. I do not like your faults. A friendly eye can never see such faults. Um, that I did. I that denied thee gold will give my heart strike as thou didst at Caesar. For I know when thou didst hate him worse, thou lovest him better than ever thou lovest Cassius." Have you not love enough to bear with me when that rash humor which my mother gave me makes me forgetful? And then finally, when they reconcile, they share a drink. He says, I cannot drink too much of Brutus' love. It's so intense. It's so intense. Well, and like some of Brutus's replies to some of those lines that you just quoted are so interesting because it's like, it's so interesting to just hear the Cassius kind of love moments across the scene because like, it's such a, it's such a great, it's such a great scene. And it's such a kind of like, it's so striking to hear it back that Cassius really makes it explicit, the love triangle. But yeah. like, he like accuses him of loving Caesar's memory even more than he loves Cassius. You know, it's incredible. Yeah. And unlike in their first scene where Brutus sort of, when it, I just, it was really jumping out at me that in their first scene together, like Brutus really mirrors Cassius's mm-hmm. language a lot. He likes yeah. to sort of parrot the same words and phrases back to them and sort of affirm Mm -hmm. them by echoing Mm. the poetry itself and in this scene he doesn't do that he doesn't use the word love back no matter how many times Cassius throws it at him but what he does mirror is he turns his own like accusations against him one of my favorite moments in the scene is when Cassius says do not presume too much upon my love I may do that I shall be sorry for Brutus says you have done that you should be sorry for yeah No, I mean, it's such a breakdown in their, like, though they reach a reconciliation when you sort of pick apart the language in this way, I feel like you can really hear that, like, something has disconnected. Mm. Yeah. Um, And again, yeah, it's this question of, like, I mean, yeah, it's a question of, like, is what we did worth it? And that's something that Brutus explicitly asks in this scene. I don't know if you pulled that line. Um, Mm. I can find it if you didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, one sec. Uh, he says it's um, 
Remember March, the Ides of March, remember, did not great Julius bleed for justice stake? What villain touched his body that did stab and not for justice? I'd rather be a dog and bathe the moon than such a Roman. Um, basically, it's, yeah, his idea of like all of this. And this is, again, he's like goes on and talks about like the bribes and the things. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like in those lines, it's just really like, what was this for? What and did I do we even th- do? Yeah. yeah. And I do think it's really interesting that Cassius is now bringing in like love, 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 love. And suddenly kind of for the first time, Brutus is like justice, justice, justice. <laughs> what about justice, justice, justice? Um. And yeah, again, it's just the idea of like, I think our love for Caesar and each other maybe didn't mean the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really interesting, though, that like some of the, even though love vanishes, a couple of the exchanges in the la- the latter part of the scene in the reconciliation have this kind of like tired couple making up at the end of the night sort of energy a couple of these a couple of these moments where in when Brutus is um apologizing toward the end he says sheath your dagger be angry when you will it shall have scope do what you will dishonor shall be humor Cassius you are yoked with a lamb that carries anger as the flint bears fire who much enforced shows a hasty spark and straight is cold again and Cassius says hath Cassius lived to be but mirth and laughter to his Brutus when grief and blood ill-tempered vexeth him. And then Brutus is like, when I spoke that, I was ill-tempered too. And they said, give me your hand. They take hands. And then there's this extraordinary moment. Well, he says, the give me your scene. hand and my heart too. Yeah. Brutus um, says, and my heart too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's like, again, it's like, even as I really hear that weariness as well. Even yeah. that sort of apology is very like, fuck man, your temper, like you just have problems, dude. Like, yeah. And you're, then, you're, like, a, you're an issue. And also just like, sorry, I'm tired. Are we okay? Yeah, we're okay. But it has this kind of like care-worn, like again in a second, Brutus does it again where he says, from henceforth, when you are over earnest with your Brutus, he'll think your mother chides and leave you so. Because Cassius says something about his rash humor, which his mother gave yeah. him. And it's this, the the possessive is what I kept noticing, the your Cassius, your Brutus, his, you know, my Brutus. And like, it's interesting because they belong to each other but it feels exhausting. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like when, (laughs) yeah, in the future when you're mad, I'll just imagine it's your mother talking. Like how insulting and dismissive as well. Like, But also how how married. Yeah, but it's like there's the intimacy of the diminutive paired with something that's like, I'm just not going to listen to you in the future when you're mad. And it's sort of like, yeah, like maybe that's how you get through a relationship. But fundamentally that's like, yeah, very Mm -hmm. dismissive and insulting and sort of... Hmm feels not it doesn't feel like a sort of good or calm or lasting resolution it feels like a sort of compromise of kind of a sort of it it feels like something in the same energy of like let's come into the tent so the men can't hear us fight well yeah it is a sort of like you know mommy and daddy are how are we gonna get through this rather than like you're I see you and understand you and forgive you and accept you it's like I'll put up with you I've figured out the way and even on the linguistic level with tracking love that you are doing, you know, the beginning of that question is Cassius says, have not you love enough to bear with me when that rash humor, which my mother gave me, makes me forgetful. And then Brutus says, yes, but he doesn't use the word. He says, yes, Cassius. And from henceforth, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And it's again, it's like, yeah, I love you enough to ignore you when you start talking like that. Yeah. And, and, and like leave, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. It's not even, it's like, bear with me. Like, yeah, I'll bear with you by not listening. Yeah. 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 Um, and 
I mean, this is a really weird scene. It's a weird scene sort of textually. We learn twice in sort of seemingly contradictory ways in this scene that Portia has killed herself. First, mm. Brutus tells Cassius as a sort of explanation for like, this is why I'm a bit why so upset? weird. Yeah. And then someone comes in and tells him and he sort of receives it as if it's new information. Yeah. And there's sort of, it's like unclear, I think, I mean, not I think, I know, no one's really sure if that's like a weird textual kind of error crux thing mm. or if it's, I've seen productions almost manage to play it off like Brutus using this as a moment to kind of perform stoicism mm. and sort of, you know, give heart to the men by showing how, you know, well he can bear with grief. Um, sure. But it doesn't quite work because Tash just also kind of reacts to it in the moment. Like it's new information. Like it, it it feels like it's actually a textual sort of error of some kind. Some kind of doubling. Yeah, it is weird. But also like back to Portia, Portia watch. It is uh, perhaps critical to mention that she dies by swallowing uh, hot fire. Hot swallowing coals. coals. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Um. It's truly awful. And the Cassius is like, died she so? And Brutus is like, even so. It's just like, that's a horrible that's way to go. And he's very calm about it. Yep. Even um, though he's like, I'm very, he's very calm about it. But then he's also like, this is why I've just been so weird. And Cassius is like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Wow. I can't believe you didn't kill me. And then Brutus is like, speak no more of her. Give me a bowl of wine. Literally the text. <laughs> yeah, let's just move on. Um. It really, it made me, it did make me think of Macbeth and the contrast between like his weariness at the news of Lady Mm. Macbeth's death, which still then gives way to the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. It's like he, he's so tired, but he's still, Shakespeare still gives him language to like express his existential anguish. Yeah. Yeah, Whereas in this, it really is just like, I just can't think about it right now. And it's like, when we move on. And I I think there's something, it's actually, I'm just realizing Mm. there's something really interesting in that pairing of like how he deals with Cassius by being like, you know what? It's fine. I just won't engage with you when you're like this. And with Portia, he's like, it's fine. I just have, I, I need to move on from it. And then what happens at the end of this scene is the thing that we have mentioned both forgetting the ghost of Caesar shows up very briefly. And unlike the kind of other ghosts of Shakespeare's canon, he's not afraid and he's mm-hmm. not, kind of freaking out and the thing he wants to do is engage with it when it leaves after like one line he says like oh I would have had I think he says I would have had more conference with thee it's like now for the first time the first entity has appeared who he wants to engage with and Mm. wants to you know the ghost says like I will see you at Philippi and he sort of hopefully is like oh so I'll see you again yeah oh yeah it's kind of heartbreaking there's only one he kind of too late has come to the realization of who he loved most. Yeah. And, you know, it's the the kind of um, neediness that starts to come upward in Cassius in this, for, in Acts 4 into 5. Yeah. It's like in the moment when, when Cassius, in the, the sort of end of that scene, I think right before the ghost shows up, when they're doing the, like, I cannot drink too much of Brutus love, they're sort of sharing a toast. And Cassius says, this was an ill beginning of the night. Never comes such division between our souls. Let it not, Brutus. And Brutus just says, everything is well. Yeah. And then, like, he leaves, and then the ghost happens. Yeah. And he, so, and the ghost happens, and he's like, why comest thou? Ghost says, to tell thee thou shalt see me at Philippi. 
And Brutus says, "When? well, then I shall see thee again? He says, aye, at Philippi. Why, I shall see thee at Philippi then. And then there's a sort of emendation stage direction for the ghost to exit. Um, and Brutus says, now I have taken heart, thou vanishest. Ill spirit, I would hold more talk with thee. It's like it heartens him to know yeah. he's going to see any form of Caesar again. Yeah, that's really interesting because I don't think I've ever seen it played like that. Yeah, me neither. I think people sort of assume like, oh, it's a ghost. It must be scary. This must and be like guilt. a Richard the Third moment. Yeah. It must be about guilt, you know, and like, and, you know, an ill portent. But yeah. actually it's um, so interesting that he said that, that he literally says that. Yeah, I mean, it, it self-described, speak to me what thou art, thy evil spirit, Brutus. And then he calls it ill spirit, but it's ill spirit, I would have more talk with thee. Right, 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 right. And then very quickly, we're in Act 5, and, you know, um, it's battle, battle chaos. Battle, battle yeah. chaos is about to be happening on all sides. And there's a couple of really interesting pieces of language here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a thing that jumps out to, from me just in terms of what we were talking about with the way that like the women's language of prophecy kind of sets mm. them in a different world. Um, we get Cassius kind of starting to speak like half-heartedly starting to speak that language. He's sort of like, I never believed in this stuff before, but I saw this really bad omen. I don't believe it though. I kind of believe it though. And it is like, yeah. I I find it interesting again, in terms of the love triangle, he's sort of wavering on being forced out of Brutus's affections yeah 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 and he has this piece of language before they kind of like go off to battle for the day because mm-hmm. their sort of dramatic goodbye is something we should talk about but before that there was this chunk that Cassius has that I wondered what you think about because suddenly I was like oh there's so there's a couple really interesting ways you could play this in terms of Cassius sort of really needing love and affirmation and Brutus kind of refusing to give it and Cassius sort of starts this goodbye moment with Brutus by saying, now, most noble Brutus, the gods today stand friendly that we may, lovers in peace, lead on our days to age. But since the affairs of men rest still uncertain, let's reason with the worst that may befall. If we do lose this battle, then is this the very last time we shall speak together? Mm -hmm. What then are you determined to do? Yeah. And then they have this weird conversation where he's like, I'd never kill myself, but I will kill myself. Yeah. Well, it turns into a conversation (laughs) about like, rather than be a very Roman conversation about Mm -hmm. like, well, rather than be taken prisoner, I'll kill myself. Cool. Me too. But it's this thing of like, I just thought that was such an interesting way of framing it because Brutus counters by talking about the practicalities. If they take me prisoner, but the question is, then this might be the very last time we ever see each other. Uh, what are you uh, gonna do? <laughs> like, oh, I, I didn't this. read it that way at all. I read it as, "What will you do if this? Like, what? What's yeah, your no, plan?" I, know. I think I think that's the actual. I think that's the the sort of like textual meaning. But it it also jumped out at me in such a weird oh, way. Oh, that's of really just funny. Being like, don't you? I mean, like, I feel like <laughs> yeah. There's... No, I mean, I can hear it now that you said it. But yeah, that did not. I did not go there at all. It's um, so funny though, because I I read it and then I was like, oh no, I know what this means. But if it's a moment <laughs> of like, if there's a. It, if you if there's a level of energy of Cassius just being like, okay, this might be the very last time we ever t- uh, see each other. What do you want to say? And then Brutus is like, all right, if they capture me, I'll probably just kill myself. And like, and then Cassius is like, me too, me too, me too. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting then that it's sort of not. To, I feel like I'm contradicting myself at this moment because when they sort of have their final kind of goodbye language, Cassius gives a little speech, and then Brutus basically just parrots it back to him. Uh huh. Which- on the one hand, I was saying like, it's a thing he kind of does in the first scene to show 
connection and love Mm. but in this moment it feels very sort of like I can't be bothered to come up with my own speech man yeah that sounds good what you said interesting yeah some of that language is um you know later Brutus says but the same day must end the work that the Ides of March began and whether we shall meet again I know not therefore our everlasting farewell take forever and forever farewell Cassius if we do meet again why we shall smile if not, why then this parting was well made. And that's the, that last part is the part that he's echoing. Returning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is interesting that the thing he brings in is this must begin, this must mm-hmm. end the work yeah. the Ides of March began. He just can't let go of the fact that like, the thing this they is did. all, the thing they did. Yeah. yeah. And again, like he, after, um, so Cassius sort of gets, it's very confusing and frankly stupid Cassius sort of misinterprets the results of like an exchange he's seeing across the battlefield and thinks that his like buddy has been killed thinks they've lost so he has his like assisted suicide with one of his slaves Mm -hmm. um and when Brutus kind of comes in to see this he says oh Julius Caesar thou art mighty yet thy spirit walks abroad and turns our swords in our own proper entrails it's just he sees everything that happens from this point forward as as Caesar as Caesar and as the sort of direct repercussions of that day. Well, this is the thing that I was, that I'm, that I'm kind of thinking about is this thing of like Cassius thinks that the killing is the thing that bonded them. The thing that they're doing for love of each other, of Rome, of like their mutual advancement, their bond. And it turns out that that's the thing that creates this fissure that sort of drives them apart and creates this love triangle that you're talking about between the two of them and like the ghost slash memory of Julius Caesar. And it wasn't an act of love. It's an act of destruction and it ruins everything, you know? And yeah. It's yeah, just or at like, least it was that for Brutus. Like, I think that that's, again, like I don't, I, I, right. I, I think it's not. To it's me, mismatched. It's, it's, yeah, it doesn't feel like the play is trying to say like, assassinations I know you're not saying this but it's like the play's not trying to say assassination's bad and it will poison everyone who tries it it's that in this instance you unfortunately chose to demonstrate your love through assassination with a guy who realized too late his heart wasn't in it and he loved the guy he was killing more yeah yeah I mean it's this thing of like it's the the they're together up until the thing and then they split because one of them has one experience of it and one of them has the opposite experience I mean in a way I think that that really connects to the fact that they die completely separately under completely separate circumstances Cassius under a misapprehension in confusion and not understanding what's going on is it Brutus that says when they find his body alas thou hast misconstrued everything no I think that's um one of his oh that's uh Titinius it's yeah it's uh, it's the guy that shows up who was being yeah. 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 No. And it's just such a like, you know, microcosm of the whole thing. I wondered what you think about this because Cassius's death happens first and it's because he has this mistake and it's before Brutus, like it's so dramatic. It almost has the, because everything Cassius does is dramatic and romantic and weird and has a kind of whiff about it. It like, it feels like the top half of like the Antony and Cleopatra suicides almost. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's I like, mean, like this almost, thing of, like, except for that it's about a guy, a character we met in that scene and it turns out it was for nothing. <laughs> but it's also just this thing of like, okay, well, this is the last, like you fit because it's a dramatic shape is two is two suicide sequentially. 
it's sort of like, and it comes out of the conversation he just had with Brutus about what they're going to do if they're up against it. You know what I mean? It's this thing of like, it feels like Cassius does it with a lot of sort of panache because he feels like he has to. And there's this sort of like, I don't know, it feels like he thinks that it's number one of what will be two sort of romantic feeling linked suicides and then it he didn't need to die (laughs) that way at all and it isn't it's like Cassius thinks he's Cleopatra yeah (laughs) yeah and it turns out he's Antony yeah Yeah. um who's anticlimactic suicide I'm sure we'll be talking about very soon someday um but yeah yeah. no I mean yeah I mean and it is definitely part of what makes the ending of this play so hard is it's just like this is how he goes this is we have to somehow make this work work dramatically um it's so sad. without just being sort of like I mean I guess you can just kind of make it pathetic but like it's just hard to kind of I mean you can make it tragic because it's genuinely futile and like what but Brutus is like so but it's just like one of these ones which again it's like he has these long speeches about this guy we don't care about and then you know, everybody comes in. It's like, oh, buddy, that was for nothing. I just think it's hard. Like, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's really hard. And it doesn't feel, I think we found a way. In fact, it is kind of thematically connected to his journey, but it is in a way that I think is hard to make feel live, I guess, if you know what I'm saying. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I was thinking too about like when Brutus, is shown the body finds the body. Brutus has that language that now that feels like it's so of a piece with his language in the sort of latter half where he says, friends, I owe more tears to this dead man than you shall see me pay. I shall find time, Cassius, I shall find time. Yeah. And no, it's I mean, so I- interesting, this thing of his kind of deferment of his feelings yeah. though, about like, I have feelings, but I'm not going to show them here. I think once Brutus comes in, it gets really good, but oh my God, it's there's a lot before that happens, like that you have to kind of work mm-hmm. through. And there's no way to kind of, do anything about it because mm. this is how he dies <laughs> like mm-hmm. you can't change it it's also his birthday <laughs> it's also his birthday it's also textually his birthday which Absolutely i think is wild. so brilliant and shakespeare just didn't have to do it and then instead well, i don't he was think like, shakespeare did it i think once again his sources did it but um interesting well it but it's such an interesting speech and the the the, the speech before cassius's death where he's like okay well it's my birthday i guess it's time to like you know he sees it as a weird full circle omen thing on this day. Mm -hmm. I breathed first and all of that. It's just such an interesting, like there are a lot of great ingredients dramatically. It's just really sad. (laughs) It's just a mess, but it's like, yeah, the birthday. Yeah. It's just hard. It's really difficult. I get, again, we were, I was throwing some shade before, but I get it. It's a very, very hard act to manage. I think. Yeah. Um, So then we get more battle scenes a weird moment where somebody gets captured pretending to be Brutus. And then Antony is like, he's not Brutus, but he is still great. So don't kill him. And you're just like, why Shakespeare? Why? Um, And then the actual Brutus kind of finds himself cornered. And again, has this very weird scene where he is asking all of his followers to kill him and nobody will do it Mm -hmm. Um, until finally someone does. Until finally someone does. And then his last moment is his last words are to Caesar. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm trying to find it right now. He has it. I mean, you know, it's a- Yeah, it says, uh, he, farewell, good Strato. He's the guy who finally agreed to kill him. Caesar, right. now be still. I mm. killed not thee with half so good a will. Ugh. Um, so spoilers. In the Globe production that I really like from 2014 or 15, 
it's it was this sort of great scene where like everybody was sort of sitting huddled together in these cloaks and Brutus kind of pulled aside each servant one by one to kind of be like hey will you kill me and they were like no 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 um until there was sort of only one guy left sort of sitting huddled and he kind of came and like put his hand on his arm and was like buddy you know it's you or nobody will you do it and the guy stood up turned around lowered his cloak and was of course of course um uh and it was amazing um (laughs) i had i it's been done a lot of times since but that was the first time i'd ever seen it uh but it they did something interesting in the Philadeloid in 2013. It, that was the best use that I had ever seen of it. Francis Barber, Francis Barber comes back, who was playing Caesar then, comes back um, as, I guess, somebody in the battle and then as the guard that leads Brutus back to prison at the end as well. There was like a really good recurrence of, of yeah, Caesar in the end. I don't think she came back in the battle, but yeah, I mean, she came back within the framing device, but mm-hmm. I think this was the first time I'd ever kind of seen it as mm. a sort of reflection in the narrative and using the doubling of that to kind of mm. bring back the ghost in a sense, which doesn't mm-hmm. happen textually. Yeah. Despite yeah. the promise. Um, no, but, that's true. Yeah. I mean, which I mean, you know, says you'll see me in, the afterlife at Philippi, right. of course but like right. it is right. like uh interesting yeah that that's the only I mean I and I think that the, maybe that is why there's this sort of sense of like kind of careening mm-hmm. towards the end because for Brutus it's sort of the dawning realization that like oh that's the only way we're going to see each other again my death yeah 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 and that's kind of all he wants by that t- by this point yeah he just wants to see Caesar yeah, it's so sad and so interesting. And I mean, just so like, I feel like what we've really driven home in this conversation in all, lots of different angles is this thing of like, it is so about the tangle of personal relationships and so not, I mean, like we were talking about last week for Coriolanus, it's so not about Rome, you know? I mean, it's so about the tangle of who loves each other and how much and why. Yeah, and it's funny because then Antony's sort of epitaph for him is, you know, the famous, this was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators say only he did that. They did an envy of great Caesar. He only, in a general honest thought and common good to all, made one of them. And it's sort of like, mm, is I don't that know. true? I don't know if you've gotten this right, actually. Uh, or maybe it's like Antony can only, like, Antony can respect Brutus because they're the two people who love Caesar. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, and I guess it is like he's sort of searching for like, okay, well, why would he have done this if he loved him? He like, genuinely he certainly, thought it was best. Yeah. He certainly didn't do it because he hated him. And that's why everyone else did it. So in that way, I guess you, you could tell, you could do a story of the play that is Brutus has this deep love for Caesar. So does Antony. But Cassius successfully seduces Brutus and all of his feelings into a different direction through act three. And then only in kind of regretful hindsight, does Brutus kind of drift away from him. But I think that that's exactly what we were saying earlier is that as Brutus himself confesses, he already was thinking that maybe this was necessary before Cassius Mm -hmm. ever spoke to him. I think it's more that Cassius sees the opportunity Mm-hmm. for this to be a symbol of his and Brutus's love for each other this right. shared goal right that he can kind of um incite but not induce in mm. you know what I mean like he's like he's like I I, I can fan the flame that's already there mm. um yeah yeah 
And but I mean, way. I feel like it just in terms of like the personal relationships, I have to feel like the most interesting version would be one where like their love does work for a little while. Oh yeah, like, absolutely. I was just, I was just saying that I think we've established it textually. Cassius yeah. does not introduce to Brutus the concept of killing Caesar. That's something that is on Brutus's mind at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But the connection that he makes does hold and work. Yeah. for a while until yeah. it gets kind of frayed by Brutus's own yes misgivings yeah and sort of as we said kind of by we can't know what would have happened if Antony had not right started a war <laughs> right right but either way it's not really as so much politics triangle as a love triangle and that is gay <laughs> that is gay so here now at the end of the play the end of the play, the end of the pod, and the end of the play, we the decide play. live on air which play we will do next. To me, there's two obvious choices based on the conversation. I think you're nodding and you agree. Um, so what, what would you like to pick your poison between Antony and Cleopatra and Richard III? Oh, gosh. Well, if we do Antony and Cleopatra, we will have been in Rome for three plays straight. I know, but then we'll be basically done with Rome, which will be nice for everybody. We have done <laughs> Troilus and Cressida already as well. So we've yeah. done kind of Greece, Greece, Roman. Yeah, we still have Cymbeline, um, but... Yeah. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that little shared grunt bodes well for Cymbeline. Um, uh, I don't know. What do you think? Do you want to finish Rome or do you want to interrupt Rome? You by can't getting just back turn it to... back around. I asked you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I really don't know. I'm really torn. I love Richard. I don't know Antony and Cleopatra as well. Um, but my instinct is maybe let's just stay the course and finish Rome. Let's do it. Yeah. So we'll see you in two weeks time to tackle another famously heterosexual play, <laughs> Antony and Cleopatra. Until then, um, you can find us on Instagram. Yes, you can. At This Shakespeare is Gay. We're on Twitter at This Shakes is Gay. That's S-H-A-X. And leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe so you get the new um, episode right in your feed. And we will see you soon. Goodbye. Okay,